Many of you know that I consider it a great privilege to be here at Southwest Harbor and um, worship with you. The, the singing is inspiring and um, the prayers are, uh, the time of prayer is so precious. As a church planter, I have a very, uh, former church planter, I have a very uh, sensitive heart for those who are visiting and so I just want to uh, encourage you to feel a part of this church, because as a visitor, I do, and um, um, thankful that you're also with us today. I think um, I want to just kind of frame this message this morning around um, the concept of getting to know Jesus better, and the praise chorus I'm sure many of you know um, by Kendrick, uh, Graham Kendrick, uh, I'll just read the second stanza of that, um, where it says, Now my heart's desire, as was just prayed, uh, now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're my best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. This morning we're going to come to know Jesus a little more uh, in a passage where we see him in a very different context in um, the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. And really the first five verses are where we're going to focus this morning, but I'll read uh, a few more verses to put it in context. But let's begin reading at um, verse 32 of Mark 14. They, that's the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He did not, they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. One of the best ways for us to learn something is to ask the question, why? And if you've raised a family of little children, you know they're really good at learning that way. Why? 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 And um, they do learn, even if the um, parent gets tired of the question. There are certain scientific discoveries we we would not have today without someone saying, why did that apple fall from the tree? You know, gravity. Or why do people get sick when they're around people who are sick? The whole infectious disease understanding we have today. So many things we learn by saying, why? 
But not all why questions should be asked. I mean, there's some why questions that are really inappropriate. If you're a, a college student and you have a summer job as a bank teller and the bank president comes in to work about an hour after everybody else, I don't think you'd have a job if you said, why can't I come in an hour late if he does? Or if you're in a military boot camp and the drill sergeant says, get down and give me 20 push-ups, you don't say, well, Why? I don't think you'd last long. Well, this morning, I want to ask a lot of why questions about what we just read here in in Mark 14. But I want to uh, be careful to resist that urge to ask questions that really should be left unanswered, because there are some. But we can learn a lot in these verses by just asking why. Probably the place to start with is, Why does Mark even tell us and let us see this side of Jesus? Why does he tell us about this incident? Why does God want this in the Bible? What's the lesson God has for us this morning in these verses? How do we know Jesus more by having these verses provided through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? In a way, it's kind of surprising that Mark is so open and lets us see this side of Jesus because, as you may know, Mark is the gospel writer whose audience, his focus was primarily Romans. And the Romans were known as conquerors, and so Mark reveals Jesus to us from that perspective of the conqueror who could conquer the winds and the waves, could conquer all kinds of diseases, even death. He was the mighty one, like Isaiah said, the uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. He's the mighty one. And the easiest way to um, answer this question, why does he show us this, is to say, because he did. Which is the kind of answer we would give a little child. They say, why? Because it's there. But that really kind of sidesteps the question. Um, why did it happen? In other words, why does Jesus have to endure this kind of suffering? There's really two answers. And the first, I think, the reason why this is here is God wants to show us something about the willingness of Jesus to suffer for you and me. The willingness of Jesus to lay down his life for us. And not just to be killed instantly in a painless way with a firing squad where it's just quick and easy. But through this. You can't miss here seeing the fact that Jesus wasn't forced against his will. He was willing. He voluntarily gave up his life for us. I got to be honest and say that. Uh, Today, uh, last week, I was driving and reflecting on some of my sin and uh, somebody who had not been kind to me and I had some thoughts that were not pure about that person. And I thought, why is that more important that I get my way? Why is it more important to me that I have what I want than God gets what he wants after all he did for me? And this passage just helped me to... See how unbalanced uh, that equation is. 
You can't miss seeing here that we really matter to Jesus. He loves us so much that he would willingly take on himself this kind of punishment. And not because he was forced to, but because he chose to. Like it says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It really is crucial that Jesus wasn't killed by an assassin's bullet or by some uh, horrible accident or, or that he was forced to give his life. The only kind of death capable of saving sinners was a death that was freely given. A willing sacrifice offered in total obedience to the will of God. So we learn from this how much he loves us, his willingness to give himself for us. But there's a second thing we learn here, and that is how to overcome temptation by going to God in prayer. It says in verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples, I've had it. I can't do this any longer. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Just stay here. I need time with Jesus. I need time with my Father. You, I, you don't want to see this. This is not going to be pretty. I just need to cry at the throne of grace. He knew what he was facing. You know, I think we're so familiar with this story of Gethsemane. You know, we hear it every year during the season of Lent, Good Friday. We know this story so well that it sort of obscures its shocking truth. When you read through the gospel, you see how fearless Jesus is with a storm and the disciples are freaking out and he's just saying, peace, be still, to this mighty wind. Or all the horrible ways the Pharisees and Sadducees and others treated him. He's rock solid with everything else. You'd expect that he doesn't have the ability to have a non-anxious presence. That he's always going to be calm and composed. Nothing rattles him. And then you see this. And he collapses in grief and anxiety here in the garden. I mean, it's so amazing to see him in this agony as he faces this awful death, what he calls this cup. And he asked that it be taken away. I mean, who would ever expect that Jesus, when it comes right down to the wire, would be asking his Father in heaven to find some alternative way for salvation to come for his people? I mean, it's a great idea, Father, that the people be saved from their sin, but can there be some other way? I mean, what's going on here? Why does Jesus pray a prayer like this? Is he kind of a little short on courage? Is he chickening out? Is this the very son of God with a weak spot? That doesn't make sense. See, I don't think we really understand the weightiness of sin or the full humanity of Jesus, both of which we kind of uh, shortcut or water it down. But when we sugarcoat these things, we miss that Jesus was fully human and that the weight of sin is enormous. 
it's not all a little white lie or a little list or a little, you know, I kind of shortcut here and shortcut there. It matters. Sin matters. It's really amazing we find this in the Bible at all, I think. And I think we are kind of afraid to let the story be what it is because we feel like we sort of need to protect Jesus from people thinking he's a weakling. I mean, you can almost hear somebody say, even Socrates had more courage than this when he was given that cup of hemlock to drink. He just took it. What's the problem with Jesus? And there it is. Mark wants to make sure we know, with no doubt, that Jesus is really dealing with fear and depression. He's agonizing over what he knows is ahead. The reason we have such a problem with this is that this is the Son of God begging for a change in the uh, agenda, begging that God would alter the plan of salvation. But that's exactly what Mark does here and the other gospel writers too. They want to be very clear that the humanity of Jesus Christ isn't just seen as some mask he wears over his shining divine nature. That's one of the great doctrines of the church, that Jesus was fully human, just as we are, and fully divine. That's the mystery of faith, how that that can be, that he's 100% God, 100% man, and yet not 200%. We... We marvel at these kinds of truths. And that's why it takes faith. If we understood it, we wouldn't need faith. We'd have knowledge. One of the most important lessons of this story of Jesus in Gethsemane is that Jesus is the fully human Son of God. His humanity isn't just an add-on, and it isn't just sort of diluted by the greater nature of his divinity, and so the humanity is this sort of second fiddle. He's a true human being just like us, and he was facing what we would be terrified to face. He stared death in the face, and not just death as we would face it, as the end of this life or entrance into another but the fear of knowing that he was going to be left alone, completely alone, to face the horrors of hell, alone. Frederick Dale Bruner calls this text the Magna Carta of Depression. When he translates uh, verse 33, where where we read, uh, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled, um, Bruner translates as, He began to be depressed and confused. Depressed, Jesus? Confused, Jesus? Knowing you, Jesus, is no better thing. See, if you've ever gone through a time where you've been depressed, I don't mean clinically depressed, that's another matter, but situationally depressed, spiritually depressed, When you've gone through that, you can totally understand this. When you are depressed, you are just plain sad. And you don't want somebody to try to cheer you up. It's just gray. You feel very alone. And it's like nobody understands what you're facing. 
It's a sad and lonely place. Well, meet your Savior. (laughs) He's been there. He knows exactly what that's like. You know, I think sometimes we beat up on ourselves when we're depressed or when we're sad, when we feel lonely or, I mean, come on, buck up, deal with it. You know, what's your problem? So many times we're told in a thousand different ways, put on a happy face, you know, just be an optimist. Don't let things get you down. All these little messages. You just have to have a little more faith. Don't you trust God? That's a big one today. But depression and all those emotions that go with it is not sin. It's human. And Jesus was fully human. When we face depressing situations, depression is the appropriate response. Anything else is probably denial. It's not spiritual failure to be depressed. Just look at Jesus. He was without sin. He was tempted to avoid the cross. A mighty, powerful temptation. Who wouldn't want to avoid that? And he was depressed about the horror of what he knew he was going to be going through. But he never sinned. And that's why this scene here in the Garden of Gethsemane can be such a comfort for us. Jesus knows what we go through no matter how awful it is. And sometimes we can go through some really awful stuff. But he knows. There's nowhere you've been, no depth of spiritual or situational depression, no doubt that you've ever had, but that you won't find Jesus is already there waiting for you. And then notice how willingly he shares this. And we would be tempted to not tell anybody that we were crying and praying and struggling and doubting and feeling awful. We wouldn't go and tell our best friends. And he gathers the disciples together and he tells them all about it. That's how it got in the Bible, right? Even though they covered up their fears, you know, when Jesus was talking to them and said, Oh, Lord, we'll never leave you. You know, we're, we're brave. We're never going to leave you. He was deeply in touch with his feelings and he freely shares this with his closest friends. I mean, some might call that weakness. I just want to challenge you to share your hurts and your struggles with your close friends or with your children. It's how they learn. The Bible says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus is teaching us how to be a spiritual giant by willingly sharing your weakness. The Apostle Paul figured out that when you are weak, then you are strong. But you've got to see that not only does Jesus share this with his closest friends, more importantly, he takes it to God in prayer. It's because of his prayer that he's able to get through this crisis of loneliness, this, this crisis of fear, this powerful temptation. He was strongly tempted to just cut and run and get out of here and find another way. But he didn't hide that from the Father. How often when we want to cut and run, when we just want to 
not stay on the narrow road that's laid out before us. When we want to just do something we shouldn't do, do we take it to the Father? Say, Lord, this is where I'm at. I'm scared to do that because there's consequences. And instead of that, Jesus goes a little bit farther. He leaves the disciples behind and he throws himself on the ground. He prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. In other words, you could find another way for salvation to happen. Don't we do the same thing when someone is ill, when we have a crisis, when we have a problem? We say, God could change this. Some of you know that I'm part-time a hospice chaplain with Eastern Maine in Bangor. And so many times, I think, there doesn't have to be death. All these sick people, God could. God could. He is Almighty God. He could. And that's what Jesus is saying. Abba, Father, everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Like I said at the beginning, there's certain why questions that we really shouldn't ask. And the question, why did Jesus ask to have this cup taken from him, probably is one of those. I mean, some people try to just simply answer it and say, well, it's a natural human response to resist death. I mean, why is it when you go underwater, you struggle? It's just a natural human response. Others say that Jesus was horrified at the thought of this awful judgment of God and, and the thought that he would be carrying the weight of the sin of the world. And I get a little nervous when people are so absolutely certain they know what God hasn't told us more clearly than God has told us. All, God, I mean, all Mark is really telling us is that Jesus wants out. He does not want to do this. As amazing as that request is. I mean, he knows that's what he came into the world for. He knew during his whole life on earth that was his mission. And now he's asking to get out of it? What you really learn here is how important it is to stay close to the Father in prayer. And there's a false teaching around today that says God is always going to deliver you. God is always going to fix your problem. God is always going to spare you pain and suffering. God always wants his children to have health and wealth and prosperity. Just watch TV. You'll see it. God just wants it to be great. All you need to do is have a little more faith and it'll be wonderful. And here you have Jesus. His face is pressed to the ground and he realizes God doesn't always give us what we want. God sometimes calls us to or allows us to face suffering and experience horrible things. Sometimes it's God's will that the only way to victory is through loss or defeat or failure. The only way to have a life is through death. Here's the good news. With every Good Friday, there's always an Easter. When you look at the prayer of Jesus, you see that he ends that prayer with, not what I will, but what you will. He tells his father exactly what he wants, exactly what he would prefer, exactly how things look in the darkness of that night in the garden. It's a gut, honest prayer. And yet in the end, Jesus said, the most important thing is not what I want. Boy, that's a hard prayer to pray. The most important thing is not what I want, 
It's what he wants. I mean, it's almost like he takes this line from the prayer he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He learned as he taught his disciples and now he puts it into gear. What we need to realize is that with Jesus, sometimes God's will doesn't always immediately bring relief from our suffering. Sometimes God's will calls us to go through something to obedience and trust. And I think sometimes it's in the really difficult times of our life that we get to the point where we can hardly muster the strength to pray. There might be things that are making you so distraught or just too grief-stricken or too lonely or too worried that you can't even pray. You're just frantic. And the only prayer you can muster is, Oh, God, help me. Do you notice that Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane doesn't have very many words either? He doesn't go on and on and on. He goes back three times and says the same thing, but it's pretty short. A lot of tears, just a few words, and one very devoted heart. Don't be afraid to be honest with God. Tell him how you're feeling. Tell him that you're scared or that you're lonely or you're angry or whatever it is. You're not going to say anything he already doesn't know. But through prayer, you find his strength. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, the writer of the Hebrews undoubtedly had this situation, this uh, scene in Gethsemane in his mind when he writes, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud voices, with, with loud cries and tears. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Interesting, he said his prayer was heard, but God didn't change the plan for salvation. He was heard because the will of the Father was done, and that's what he asked for. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There have been times in my life, many of them, I have a little box Um, maybe I'm telling too much, but I have this box where I keep all my favorite devotional readings and things that help me. I call it my Ebenezer box, you know, because, uh, you you know, the Hebrew Eben is stone and Ezer is help. And, uh, you know, the story of one of the patriarchs was traveling and he set this stone up and he said, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here I put up this stone of help saying, thus far has God helped me. So in my Ebenezer box, I have this prayer of Thomas Merton. Sometimes when I can't pray, other than God help me, I just read his prayer and let it be mine. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I really am. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. 
And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I know nothing about it. Therefore, I will always trust you. And though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. That's sort of the prayer Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this morning we've seen another side of Jesus, a side you don't very often see, gotten to know him a little better. Like the song says, there's nothing like knowing him. Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so to be with you and never die. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're my best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, in the busyness of our lives and all the confusion and commotion and complicating situations we face, we lose focus on you. Thank you for this morning and bringing us to your house where we can regroup, refocus. Give us the faith to believe that you are watching over us when our eyes are not on you. Help us to not worry about the times that we lose focus, knowing that you are God of all grace and you love your children. Even when we stumble, even when we wander, Lord, teach us to trust you more. Thank you, Father, for this example of our Lord Jesus. Even in the midst of such agony, being able to say, not what I want, but what you want. May that be our prayer now and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.